We've been in a series that we've entitled uh, The Gospel of John, looking through uh, the eyes of Jesus' best friend, the Apostle John, at the life and ministry of Jesus. And we find ourselves in John chapter 6 this morning. Uh, John chapter 6 is a passage that contains one of the most famous of all miracles that Jesus would do. The feeding of 5,000 people. Now, i got to be honest with you, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. First of all, for a practical reason. Many of you know that not only do I pastor the church here, but I also have a second job, and that is as a caterer. And this is right up my alley, Jesus catering for thousands of people. I've been there, and I've done that, and I can tell you, based on the inventory of what Jesus had from a caterer's mouth, this is indeed a miracle, all right? I can tell you also as a caterer, there have been many a times where I have prayed that this very miracle would be able to be done with my own hands. When I've seen people take more food than I expected, I've never prayed for loaves and fishes, but pork chops and chicken. And I got to tell you, it's never worked. And so when I see my Savior do this, it points to me that Jesus has way more power, way more ability than I have in my own finiteness. But there's a second reason why I love this passage. And it's so apropos for where I find myself and I know where so many today as followers of Jesus Christ find themselves. What we're going to learn is that the disciples at a real low point. They're struggling, and there's a whole bunch of reasons, and we'll get to that in a moment. But they're at a low point in their life. They're wondering, have they backed the right horse? That is, in following Jesus, are they getting the reward that the risk is bringing upon them? Is it worth it? They're tired. They're bewildered. They're wondering if if Jesus is all that he says he is, and this miracle is going to serve for every bewildered, and burdened, and hurting, and harassed, and struggling Christian to tell you that not only is Jesus enough, but he will give you all that you need to not only make it through the day, but way more than you could ever ask for or imagine. What an encouragement this passage brings before us. If you look at verse one of the chapter, we see two words that we would jump right by, and we would move right along. But we need to stop because it brings so much, if you will, seasoning to what we're working with and dealing with. The two words are after this. And the question that the reader should ask is after what? After what? What's what's going on? What's the context? Well, if you've been with us over the last couple weeks, we found ourselves in chapter 5 of John. And John tells us about two things that take place. First of all, Jesus heals the man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And then because of that, Jesus now has this confrontation with the religious establishment where the religious establishment has said they now all the more want to see Jesus dead. Now, the reasons they give is that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He commanded a man to pick up his mat and walk, which broke the rules of the man-made rules surrounding the Sabbath. And then Jesus was saying that God in heaven was his father and that he was equal to God. So Jesus, at the end of chapter 5, begins to lay down the gauntlet where he says, listen to me, I am God, and because of that, you have a choice. 
Enter into fellowship with me. Join me in walking with me. Do as I say. Let me lead you and guide you. And as a result, you will experience blessing and good, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Or reject me. Reject the claim that I am uh, the son of God who has come to save sinners, and you will meet up with me again on the judgment day where I will in all my wrath and indignation consign you to a place called hell. Now Jesus knew what he was saying was true. Jesus knew the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He knew when they were going to arrest him. He knew when they were going to, uh, when one of his disciples was going to betray him. He knew when he was going to be crucified. He knew when he was going to go to the cross. And he knew three days later he was going to rise from the dead. Jesus knew it. It was a foregone conclusion because Jesus knows all things. He even knows the heart, the, the thoughts of the heart and mind of every person. But let's remember, Jesus is doing this in the company of his disciples. And they're hearing Jesus give blasphemous statements. And they're not sure yet if Jesus is all that he said he is. Now, they've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things. They've heard him teach with incredible clarity and and confidence and courage. But now Jesus has brought a lot of heat on himself. And I got to imagine that the disciples are starting to feel like they're co-conspirators in this. And just as the the, uh, Pharisees want to kill Jesus, I wonder if it's in their head that they're saying, they're going to kill us too. So they want to get away. As we look at this miracle, we're going to learn that John isn't the only one who brings it up. In fact, this miracle of John's is the only miracle that he talks about that's recorded in all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in each of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you were to look, this passage comes on the heels of a really big event. That event is the death of John the Baptist. And so we know that some of the disciples of Jesus were disciples of John's. So you've got a part of the disciple group that's grieving over the loss of their old teacher, their old rabbi, this man who had done great good in Israel, had been put to death by beheading because of Herod, the king that was overseeing all of Israel. And it was a testimony to anybody who messed with the Jewish establishment that they too would be dead. So when we read the words after this, we have a group of disciples that are despondent. They're running in fear. They're concerned about what their future involves. They're unsure about this Jesus. And Jesus says he takes them away to a place near the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, and he tells them what? Nothing. When they needed a word of encouragement, Jesus doesn't say anything. What Jesus allows is more pressure, more problems to come their way. Notice the text says this. After this, that is after this confrontation that the Jews want to kill Jesus with, after John the Baptist is killed, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. In other Gospels, we are told that the disciples were like, get out of here. Jesus, tell them to get lost. We don't have any time or attention. Let's face it, when you're hurting in this world, when you're struggling, the last thing you want to do is have to serve and care for other people and their problems. So here are these tired, in some ways angry disciples 
And Jesus looks up to the crowd, it says. And in other passages, it says that uh, in looking at the crowd, he had compassion on them. And these people are following this large crowd. We're told that they number 5,000. They are following Jesus, notice verse 2, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus goes up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, and the people followed. Now notice verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John, why do you bring that up? Why does it matter that Passover was there? John, you're talking to a whole big audience, not just Jews, but Greeks and Romans and and New Testament followers who are going to read this for uh, years and years to come. Why, Why do we need to know that the Passover is going on? What John is trying to do is connect the works of God in the Old Testament to the works of Jesus in the New Testament. And what he's going to say is, see, what God did in the Old Testament is the very things Jesus is doing in the New Testament. Therefore, there is equality. Jesus, what his statement was to the religious establishment is true. Just as God, after the Passover, led the people of Israel into the wilderness, what did he do? He helped them when they were hungry by allowing manna to shower down from heaven. Now Jesus is going to meet this New Testament group. They are going to be hungry, the other gospel writers say. And Jesus is going to bring bread pretty much out of nothing. And then later on Jesus is going to say that he himself is the bread of life. We'll learn about that in two weeks to come. And so there's this connection that John's saying, I want you to know Jesus is just like his father in heaven. Both of them were in the catering business. Both of them were in the bread business. And it's a a verifying of what Jesus said that all I'm doing is what my father has done. I'm doing the same work. Now we get to the crux of the issue. Lifting up his eyes, verse 5, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. Let's stop there. So what are we to learn about this? We've got 5,000 people, women and children, maybe even in addition to that. They're hungry. The text tells us in the other gospels that there's no place to find food, And so we've got this group of people coming. You've got tired and bewildered and hurting disciples. They have nothing. They're on empty. They've got nothing left to give to people. They're they're hunkering in to take care of themselves. And these people are pressing upon them. And the first observation, I want to give two observations and three opportunities we have in our text today. The first observation is this. No problem with Jesus. With Jesus, no problem is too improbable or impossible to solve. So you got 5,000 people coming your way. You have no food. You have no energy. These people see a problem that they just want to push away. Their compassion is zero. Let's get get them out of here, Jesus. Jesus is not going to preach a message. He's going to show in action that there's no problem that the disciples face that Jesus can't address. So Jesus is going to ask the question. He's going to ask the question to Philip. Notice in verse 6, he says, or verse 5, where are we going to buy bread? And he turns to Philip. Why Philip? For those that don't know, Philip is in what we would call the second tier of disciples. 
In the first here, you had uh, John, who's the author here, James, his brother, and Peter. Those three guys were the closest to Jesus. They were in Jesus' inner circle. Then you had the second tier of disciples, individuals like Philip, who's listed here, Andrew. We could even put Judas in there. Uh, He would be a part of that. Uh, Then you have the the kind of the third tier, and those are the disciples that you didn't even maybe know about. Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Simon, and James the Lesser. Rodney and Randy and... No, I'm just kidding. They're not in there. See, you wouldn't even know, right? But here's this middle-tier guy. And again, it's not because Jesus didn't love them anymore, any less. Just there's significance in the storyline of what's taking place. Philip is asked the question, hey, Philip, what are we going to do? Now, scholars say, why in the world would he ask Philip? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, we know from other passages that Philip is from the area. So if anybody knew where the local Costco or Sam's or Jewel or Aldi were at, Philip was the guy to go to. But the second thing is, is that I think what Jesus is doing is he's asking instead of the group, an individual, a question to garner having to work it out in their faith. And so Philip does. And maybe you're like Philip this morning. What Philip does is he pulls out his pocket calculator and he starts counting heads going, okay, you've got 5,000. All right, so 5,000, the running rate for some bread and Okay, and he's doing what Tim does in the catering. Okay, so we're going to need this amount of food. All right. All right. So number one, there's no place to eat Jesus. And number two, Jesus, my numbers carry the one. 200 denarii. 200 denarii would have been about a year's salary for the average workman in that day. And so Philip's in there going, okay, not only is there no food, which Jesus, you already knew that, but it's going to cost us $200. We don't even have that kind of money here. And notice with Philip, he tries to answer a supernatural issue, meaning a problem so big he can't deal with it, not only with finding out how big the problem is, but adding a problem. Not only do we not have food, but we don't have enough money to take care of the food. Isn't that what we do as individuals? We, we compound our problems with our man-made solutions. And so Philip says, listen, there's no way that we'd even be able to come up with enough money, let alone enough food to take care of these hungry people. We have an impossible situation. Time out. As a people, I'm going to imagine in a group this size that some of you are dealing with problems that are really, really big. That you would say from a human standpoint is impossible to address. These are the kinds of problems that you wake up thinking about. All your day is filled with with just ruminating on this problem and you go to bed and the last thought of your day is the problem at hand. And you're trying to throw every earthly solution to it. You've got out your calculator. Your money's not gonna pay for it. You're trying to figure out, can I fix it with my time? That's not working. And you just continue to come back to this idea that this is too impossible of a situation. The feeding of the 5,000 for us is a reminder that with Jesus, your problem, no matter how big and how difficult it may be from an earthly perspective, God says, listen to me, Jesus is able to address it. And you gotta believe that, friends. 
You gotta believe that in your heart, that whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with today, that Jesus is able to address it. Now notice he asked the question in verse six. He says, he said this to Philip, to test him, for he himself, if you underline in your Bible, I would underline those last five words, that he himself knew what he would do. This did not come as a surprise to Jesus, nor is your problem a surprise from Jesus. Let me just tell you, whenever that problem reared its ugly head, God did not get up in heaven and be like, oh my goodness, Godhead, did you see what Tim's dealing with? What's he going to do? Oh, my goodness. I, we don't have any power to deal with that. Hogwash. Jesus goes, I know the problem, and I can address the problem, and this is a reminder to all of us that no matter what we're facing, Jesus knows your problem, and he has an answer to solve it. And right there should be an awesome amen, right? I've got a plan to grow you in character and perseverance and endurance, I'm going to take that which man may be intended for harm to use for good, as he did in Joseph's life. I'm going to do all things, I'm going to allow all things to happen for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. These promises that Jesus articulates and God declares in his word are the anchor for our soul when problems that are too impossible for us to solve should be laid at the feet of Jesus. Observation number two. We see that there's no problem too improbable or impossible for Jesus to solve. Number two, there is no person, there's no person that's too inadequate or insignificant to serve when Jesus is around. So enter Andrew. Andrew's the people person. Andrew's the networker. And Andrew, he knows there's a problem. We've got all these people. So Andrew doesn't work with calculators. He works with people. And so he starts milling around the crowd, and he starts finding people. And you need to know this about Andrew. Andrew always was bringing people to Jesus. And he finds this little boy. Now, what John declares is that he finds a boy, and he presents a boy to Jesus, and he says this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there's a boy if you want to know literally that, that word boy there, little kid, okay? The idea here, this is not a teenager, it's not a young adult, this is a little kid, it's the same word that's used of the nobleman's son. Remember, this is not a boy that you wrestle with, this is a boy you hold, okay? So this is a little kid, all right? Probably a grade schooler. And notice he then says that he has a little lunch. There's a boy, a little kid here, who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, John helps us a little bit because what we have here, first of all, is a poor kid's lunch. Barley loaves, barley was used to feed poor people and animals. So we get a picture into this little boy's life. He's, he's a pathetic little boy, and he has a pathetic little meal. He has barley loaves that is really only good for animals, and then he has two fishes. Now get out of your mind the beautiful trout or the beautiful salmon served in the finest of restaurants. These are two little sardines, pickled. Think of beets, okay? Salty and, and not all that appetizing. But when you're poor, that's what you eat. And notice what Andrew says. Now we give Andrew an A plus for networking, 
But then right away, he says, but what are they for so many? Isn't that what we do with God? We present something to the Lord, and we're like, Lord, we, hey, we think we got something you can work with here, but who am I? What are my meager attempts going to be? What are my insignificant roles and, and abilities going to do with a problem so big? And what Jesus wants us to know is that no matter how inadequate you think you are, no matter how insig- insignificant you think you are, when you place yourselves into the hands of Jesus, look out. Let me say that again, because I think there are a lot of people here who say, who, who do you think I am? Why do you think I would have any kind of use? I, I, I'm just a middle-class person. I don't have many gifts or abilities. I, I'm of an average intellect. I have average looks and, and all of this, and we dumb ourselves down and we forget when in the master's hands, Jesus can do a miracle through you and me, and he does. And so Jesus takes this little boy's food, this little meal, and he begins to expand upon it. And he begins to ask all the people to sit down, and that's what they do. And Jesus takes this little boy's meal, and he prays over it, and then Jesus begins to break it apart again and again and again and again. 5,000 or fifteen or 20,000 are served. Again, listen to me. I know the food business. I've been in the food business longer than I've been in the church world. And I will tell you, to feed 5,000 or 10,000 people would demand a whole lot more room. And this last year, I did an event that served well over 10,000 meals in a week. And I had to have a semi-truck for all the provisions. They had to bring more food for me to feed them. This is a ton of food. Maybe I should say tons of food. And Jesus just kept breaking it up and breaking it up. And notice what the text says. And John wants to make this abundantly clear. That it wasn't that everybody got a little bit, but more than enough. So it says that Jesus has everybody sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, to those who were seated, so also the fish. And notice what he says. One, they could have as much as they wanted. Number two, in verse 12, they were given their fill. They had eaten their fill. And three, after everybody had first, seconds, thirds, hey, by the way, before we close the buffet line, any last one? Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now when they saw this sign that Jesus had done, they said, indeed, this is the prophet who has come into the world. And then they wanted to make him king. What are we to take away from this, these observations of this miracle? There are three that I want you to walk away with. Opportunity number one has to do with you and I in our times of suffering. What we need to do is in our times of trouble, we need to recognize we shouldn't struggle alone, but we should go to Jesus when trouble arises. 
when the troubles of our lives arise, when they come on a random Tuesday, our first thing we should do is not pull out our calculators and figure out what this problem's gonna cost us, nor are we to go look for other people to find, try to address or alleviate the problem at hand. What we are to do is to run to Jesus. And sadly, far too often do I hear from the people of my own church of them struggling alone never giving it to Jesus. Well, this morning, the Holy Spirit wanted you to hear a truth. Long before Pastor Josh was aware of what I was going to be preaching on, he picked a song that says, you are not alone. You're not alone. Stop struggling alone. As a child of the most high God, God is with you. We recited as a church early in this service, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you walk away with anything today in your problems, in your troubles, in your tribulation, you Christian are not alone. So don't feel abandoned. Don't feel isolated. Jesus is there and he says, I know your problem or problems and I know the solution. And so get close to me and watch what I do. And we need to be doing that in our troubles, in our problems. We need to get close to Jesus and with great joy watch Jesus address our problem in his proper timing and way. First opportunity. Opportunity number two, after we stop struggling alone, we then recognize that there is a truth from this little boy, and that is you and I can't be stingy. We can't be stingy, but we need to be generous with what we have. Let's change the scenario for a moment. And Andrew went out into the crowd. Anybody got any food? Hey, anybody bring their lunch today? Hey, little kid. I'm Andrew, I'm with Jesus, and Jesus needs your lunch. Ah, stranger danger, and runs off. Let's say he responds that way. Or maybe he doesn't run away in fear, but Andrew says, hey, I'm with Jesus, and Jesus needs your food, but it's my food. My mom gave it to me so that I would have lunch, and if I give it away, then I won't have lunch, and and I'll be left out. So I'm gonna keep it for myself. There's an incredible truth that I think is, is in this text. This little boy took that which was his and he gave to Jesus. Laudable. Something we should model. Taking what we have, giving it to Jesus. Now, had the boy kept the lunch, let's work through this equation, the boy's belly would have been full. He would have been satisfied. But listen, he would have eaten, been satisfied, and in the world around him, there would have been need. Think of it this way, my friends. When you are stingy with your possessions, when I'm stingy with my possessions, we ourselves are satisfied while a world finds itself in need all around us. So our bellies are full, but there's a great many people that are in need of the very thing we have. Now, What this kid needed to recognize is if I give to Jesus my meal, I'm going to trust that Jesus knows my needs 
And that whatever he's going to do, he'll take care of my needs and also the needs of those around me. So he, with open hands, says, here's my meal. Jesus, I'm trusting you that at some point I'm going to get part of this meal or somehow you're going to take care of my needs and others are going to be blessed as a result. So Jesus, with this boy with open hands says to Jesus, here's my meal, take it, do what you will with it, and notice that the math equation does. The boy not only gets fed, but everybody else gets fed. That is, his meal went from just taking care of him in the hands of Jesus going to be multiplied to be a blessing to a great many more people, a great multitude of people. And listen to me, my friends, that is why we, we encourage you to be a part of the grace of giving. It isn't to keep the lights on. It isn't so we can remodel the place. It is so that you, like the little boy, may open your hands and say, my possessions aren't mine. God gave them to me. I'm gonna put them back into the hands of Jesus. And I know Jesus will take care of me for my God will supply all my needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. But when I put it into God's hands, God then multiplies it. And this is the great blessing. And don't miss this. That little boy got to sit there and watch his meal be multiplied and multiplied and multiplied multiplied and multiplied 5,000 times over. And he got to go home and he got to say, my little meal did that in the hands of Jesus. When you give to the Lord's work, you get to say, my meager donation made great work in the hands of Jesus. And you get to watch your little become a whole lot more. It's like dropping a little stone into water. The ripple effect of your giving will go on way beyond anything you could ever ask for or imagine. So what are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your possessions? What are you doing with the good things God has given? Are you stingy with them? I'm gonna hold them for myself. Or are you saying, like the little boy did, here's what I have, Jesus, do with it what you will. And then in response, watching not only him meet your needs, but see the ripple effect of how your little thing was used in the hands of Jesus to do great things. Boy, if we would get a hold of that, it would change the way that we look at all that God has given us and it would give us a bird's eye view of how God wants to use what you have to be a blessing to a whole great number of people. Don't be stingy. Don't be stingy. Instead, be generous like this boy was. and put it in the hands of Jesus. Number three, we see finally the third opportunity is we need to not avoid serving. That's where the disciples were. They didn't want to serve anybody else. They wanted to get away. They wanted to recoup. They wanted to lick their wounds. They were hurting. And Jesus says, I got a job for you. I need you to go and distribute the food. And so 12 guys go out and they feed the 5,000. They're tired. They're burdened. But in that moment, there's some solace. Number one, the look on people's faces as they're being fed. Word is getting out that Jesus has taken this little boy's lunch and, and it's being multiplied and multiplied. And so people are excited and they're excited to taste and partake of what Jesus is doing. And you get to be the ushers, you get to be the buffet servers of this incredible meal. So they're getting encouraged. They're seeing that Jesus is doing something. He is fulfilling what he said he was and that is that he's God. But then at the end of it, After everybody's gotten their fill, they're all satisfied, including the little boy, including the 5,000, including the disciples. 
Jesus brings the disciples, those who are tired, who are burdened, who have been harassed, who are struggling. Jesus gathers them and he says, okay, I want you to go get everything else. Jesus, we're tired. We've just fed everybody. Can we just have a break? And Jesus says, I want you to go gather what it is. And I want you to look at the text and you're going to help me here in a moment, okay? And he says to the disciples, I want you to go gather the leftovers so that nothing may be lost. And in verse 13, so they gathered them up and they filled baskets with the fragments from the loaves that were left by those who had eaten. How many baskets? Say it like you mean it. How many baskets? How many disciples? Aha. Aha. What an encouragement. They were overflowing. And what Jesus knew was that his disciples were hurting. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. When you serve me, I know you're tired. I know you're hurting. But when you're in the service of my ministry, I'm going to allow you to have leftovers. And there was a basket for each one of them. A basket for the next day and the day after that. There was more than enough to feed them for some time to come. And I want you to hear this as followers of Jesus Christ. When you serve the Lord and you're spent and you're tired, God doesn't just give you what you need in the moment. But when you will be faithful with the little that God has given you, he will give you more and he'll give you what you need for the days to come. And so I know there's a great many people out there that are tired and you're hurting, and all you want is a break. And I want you to know in that moment, Jesus may call you to even more ministry. He may call you to even more service. Don't be stingy with it, but be generous with your time, your talents, your treasure, and in doing so, Jesus will say, listen, I'll take care of your needs today and the days to come. And here's what I've learned in my 20 years of ministry, that is exactly true right when I think I can't give anymore, right when I feel like I'm so tired, all I want to do is give up, Jesus begins to multiply the little things that we've given him and makes it much, much more. And when you serve and you give to God in that way, you get to be a part of a bird's eye look at the miracles that God is doing around you. That's why I love this story because it gives us so much hope and so much encouragement about a heavenly father and his son who loves us so much that when we are hurting, he doesn't just preach a message to us, but with our own eyes, we get to see what little insignificant and inadequate things we give to God can be done in the hands of the master. 